it's almost like we want competing things that are kind of in, in conflict. I think maybe we're not then and now very articulate about what a good election looks like and a good political system looks like. Is it is it one that is clean and, and sober and well-informed and rational, or is it one that has the most people participating as possible, including people who are kind of overlooked in other aspects of society? And you have this real trade-off. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Here we are on the Friday before Father's Day. So we have a little special Father's Day content for you today. At the top of the show, we're going to catch up on the news, specifically President Biden's trip to Europe. So we're going to talk about his meeting with the Queen and his meeting with Putin, which is about as different audiences as you could hope to ask for. Then in the main segment of the show, I'm going to share my interview with John Grinsman. He's an American historian, and he has written this fantastic book. And it's really through the prism of a specific father and daughter that have been kind of lost to history, but are totally fascinating. And so I think you're really going to love that interview in the main segment of the show. And then at the end, for outside of politics, we're going to talk about our own dads. But first, today is the day for months. We have been working with the fantastic team at Apple, and we are thrilled to share that Apple Podcast Subscriptions has officially launched. Now you can get our bonus content. It's really cool. Within the Apple Podcast app, there's a Pantsuit Politics channel. There's the show two times a week. Nothing's going to change with that. But now you can subscribe to our channel for $14.99 a month and get the news brief Monday through Thursday, nightly nuance Monday through Thursday, and you get to try for two weeks for free. Come on. I think that two-week trial for free is what makes me most excited because it is hard to explain what Mm -hmm. our premium content does until you've seen it. We get so many questions where people say to us, how can I stay informed throughout the week without getting stressed out by the news? And we've tried to put together premium offerings that are our answer to that question. So in the morning news brief, Sarah is going to, in you know five to seven minutes, walk you through the most important things you need to know about every single day. And as those stories develop, she'll tell you, this is new today, or we don't have any new information today, but you're still going to be hearing about this, and here's what you really need to understand. So it is a great way to stay on top of the headlines without all of the conflict and stress that you hear elsewhere. And then in the Nightly Nuance, I pick one story every day to walk you through in a greater amount of depth. So about around 10 minutes we'll spend together. Maybe we'll cover a specific Supreme Court decision. Maybe we'll talk through things that you need to know about why lumber is so expensive. We do a wide range of topics, but we really try to think together about what's going on. And then Thursday's Nightly Nuance, everybody gets excited for because we do that one together. And look, For our premium subscribers, there's a whole lot of trust. Mm -hmm. We know that people who spend dollars on the show are invested in what we do and get it. So we just get a little spicier on Thursdays. We just, we drop some of our capacity for complexity and grace. And that's where we (laughs) sometimes just kind of let it fly because we're all human beings who need spaces to do that. 
So, for example, this week, we let it fly about Mitch McConnell because sometimes we need to get some things off our chest. We do that on the Thursday Nightly Nuance. And look, our bonus content is really, it's it's where we spread our wings. So the news brief this week, I was at Beth's house. So we did it together on Wednesday. Our kids did the news brief with us, which was a massive hit. If you want to hear five little voices tell you to have the best day available to you, it's pretty precious. Often we'll have interviews that we can't fit the entirety of into the show but are really really good so we share those interviews in our bonus content and so that premium subscription is really it is it's where we spread our wings it's where we relax it's where we get spicy it's where we share stuff that we just can't fit into the two shows a week so the two shows a week are going to stay the same patreon's going to stay the same but now you find out you have another place to get our premium subscription especially for those of you who are like i love you so much i cannot add another platform so now you don't have to now you can get it all through apple podcast subscription And the design is really slick. The team has put a ton of thought into this. We know because we were a small part of some of those conversations, which was such an honor. And so knowing that we have a really solid channel that's going to be easy to use and enjoy means a lot to us. So we encourage you to go try that two-week trial and then become a premium member so that you can be with us and and spread your wings alongside us there. Speaking of spreading wings, it's a perfect transition, just perfect, didn't even plan that, to President Biden, along with his beautiful wife, First Lady, Dr. Joel Biden, flew to Europe. They went on a little European vacate. That's a joke. It was not a vacation. They worked the whole time. (laughs) They went to the UK for the G7. They went to Brussels for a NATO summit. They went to Geneva and met with Vladimir Putin. And they worked a lot into this trip. A lot of things in a short period of time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from 
frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. theme of the trip, as we have discussed before, was President Biden's conviction that the world is kind of sorting itself into democratic nations and autocratic nations, and that democracy is really critical to meet the challenges that citizens across the globe are facing. And that really culminated in his meeting with President Putin of Russia. There was a lot of analysis about, kind of annoying analysis, if I'm being honest with you, about whether he could, like, tame Putin. And he is clearly... In one meeting? <laughs> well, and he has clearly said from the beginning, that is not the goal. And I really thought that there was a lot of discipline around the message that this is about America's self-interest, not about collaboration and cooperation for the sake of those things, but because, especially as it pertains to cybersecurity, we need to establish some ground rules. And even though President Biden and Vladimir Putin held separate press conferences after the meeting, it was clear that those ground rules were discussed and that both of them understood that it's mutually beneficial to have some red lines that we don't cross in peacetime. I mean, I hate to spend so much time on President Biden's successes, pointing out how they are in clear contrast to the way the Trump administration functioned. But man, it's just on full display on a trip like this, right? Where there wasn't drama. I mean, you could even feel the press struggling with like, what do, how do we say? I mean, heck, I feel like we struggle a little bit with like, how do we say it's going very smoothly one more time, right? There was no press conferences where he threw NATO under the bus. There were no moments where he went, remember when he met with Putin by himself and made everybody leave the room? What the? Like, there's just no moments like that. It's just a totally run-of-the-mill, and by that I mean essential and important, diplomatic trip to Europe where he met with leaders. I did think that him and Macron looked like they were having an amazing time together. They were very friendly. But, you know, it's just, it was what it was supposed to be, which means not total and complete drama on display for all of us across Twitter, like... In a diplomatic mission, there should be lots of guessing among the American public and the media about what's going on because it shouldn't be writ large in the sky for everyone to watch the drama. Like, that's just the worst possible way to run foreign policy. There was frustration in the press about access issues. They felt they should have had more access than they did on this trip. The most dramatic thing that happened, as best I can tell, is that President Biden was quite late for a press conference after the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, tweeted that he was really excited that Ukraine was going to be accepted as a full NATO member. And apparently that is not what the NATO members had agreed to, that there is hope that Ukraine will eventually become a full NATO member. But There are members of that alliance who don't think Ukraine is there yet because of corruption and I think probably just relations 
relations with Russia in general. So that was kind of a pins and needles moment because that tweet went out before Biden was supposed to face the press and he couldn't come out and validate that. But otherwise, it was very smooth. Something I've been wanting to ask you about, Sarah, since I've been reading this coverage. I know that one of the topics that came up between President Biden and Putin was Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia, who Putin has attempted to have killed a couple times. Mm. And Biden saying and then reiterating to reporters that it would be very, very bad for Russia if Navalny ends up dying at the state's hands. And I just want to ask about Putin's response, which was basically domestic matters are not up for discussion in these meetings. There is a piece of me that wants to know or wants to explore whether that's fair. Well, I mean, I, first of all, I don't think Alexei Navalny is a domestic matter anymore, right? Like, they've they, the problem with Vladimir Putin, especially when there are not some really hard boundaries around him, particularly put in force by the United States, when we were just absent from that role, as we were during the Trump administration, is that he gets a little aggressive. He goes way beyond the boundaries. And so do his sort of strongmen across Europe, like we saw in Belarus, right? Like, it's almost like we're not there to necessarily punish everything that he does, domestic or otherwise. And I think the line is blurry often with Vladimir Putin. But it's almost as if we are putting hard boundaries around what is possible, right? Like, we're not just dealing with what he's doing. We're trying to prevent what he could do. And he responds to strength. And I think that it's really important that even if he's saying, like, well, we're not even going to talk about that, like, that it be brought up overall is very, very important. I think that's a really good point that it often does not remain domestic with Putin. I've just been thinking a lot about how the traditional approach to foreign policy, which involves a lot of sanctions activity, which involves a pretty broad look at whether a leader is behaving in ways that here in America seem acceptable to us or not, I've been thinking a lot about election interference and what constitutes election interference. So I'm trying to push myself to ask those questions. Like, is it fair for him to say, look, America wants a weak Russia. So, of course, the parties that America supports are parties that would be bad for the Russian Federation. I don't want to agree with Putin on anything, but I also don't want to be just obstinate and disagreeing with him for the sake of it. And it sounds like President Biden adopted a really tough approach I heard a commentator on ABC's Start Here this morning saying, you have to always remember that Putin wants to be seen as an adversary. And I think that the handling of those separate press conferences and the discipline message that we heard about it really upholds that, like respects the fact that this is an adversarial relationship and also that both countries are better off by keeping that adversarial posture in a certain range. Right. Again, I just don't think that we're going to fully understand or comprehend everything that happened at this meeting like the snafu over Zelensky aside like we should learn about all the tense moments and breakthroughs years from now in memoirs of diplomats that were there as God intended and not on Twitter the day it happens right so that's what I look forward to I look forward to you know a decade from now getting a real glimpse inside what the day-to-day happenings were like with the NATO members and the G7 and even Putin, but I don't want it displayed across Twitter. So of that, I am I am thankful. For our moment of hope today, as we stay in the positive realm, 
It's really encouraging that the United States Senate voted unanimously to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. So we are rapidly approaching Juneteenth. If you don't know much about Juneteenth and its history, last year we did a five things you need to know about Juneteenth episode that we'll link here in the show notes. You can check that out and get a fuller picture. Anytime the Senate acts unanimously, to me, it is cause for celebration. We have already heard that this bill is expected to pass the House rapidly. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has come out as supportive of it, which is a great sign. Of course, uh, Speaker Pelosi is supportive of it. So hopefully this will sail through and be cause for real celebration and a moment of all of us kind of coming to grips with our history and celebrating all of America's history, not just parts of it. Next up, I'm going to share my interview with John Grinspan. He is a historian of American democracy, youth, and popular culture. He is a curator of political history at Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. We met him in Iowa, where he was with a colleague collecting political memorabilia from the caucus. It was amazing. He was so kind and considerate with his time. And he's recently written a book, The Age of Acrimony, How Americans Fought to Fix Their Democracy. And here's my conversation with him. John, you have written a book about a father and a daughter living through a transformative moment in American politics marked by conspiracy theories, partisan press, political violence, progressive changes, and how all that conflict manifested in their relationship to one another. Can you please tell us what years your book is set in? I guess the book is technically set from the ending of the Civil War in 1865 to around 1915 or so. But the arc of this family really goes from like the over a century, from like the 1830s to the 1930s. This father and daughter. So not 2021, not 2021. <laughs> no, not, not 2021 at all. But sometimes it, it sure feels like it. Yeah, it really does. I mean, we just had this debate recently on our show because that particular moment in American history is so reflective of the patterns we're seeing now. So mm-hmm. tell us how you decided to focus on this moment in this particular father and daughter? You know, sometimes when you write a book, it's like a convergence of things you're obsessed with just make sense together. One was I I did want to look at an era where things look pretty similar to today in some negative ways. I mean, we have this tendency of saying we're more divided than we have ever been since the Civil Mm -hmm. War. But we were really divided in the generations after the Civil War, too. And instead of having another Civil War, people found a way to resolve some of their issues. So I, I kind of wanted an a story that went from an ugly era to a more optimistic era. And it's really hard to connect the dots across big eras in one person's life because people die or they're just not where you want them to be. But Will Kelly and Flory Kelly, they're just always exactly where you need them to be to move the narrative forward. So this, they just connect from Abe Lincoln to Frederick Douglass to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, whoever, whomever you want to talk about, they're friends with or enemies with that person. So they were really, really interesting and just kind of telling this big story of American democracy. So the father, William, I love his nickname, Pig Iron Kelly, (laughs) was a congressman, and he was operating in the late 1860s after the Civil War. I love this quote. This is the fundamental paradox of their era and perhaps our own. Americans bemoaned the failure of their democracy, but also joined in its worst habits with a zealous fixation. So tell (laughs) us what that looked like when Will Kelly was coming into Congress. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you can't get away from politics back then. I mean, we... Mm. We, we, we know that voting rights were really d- limited in that era. Women couldn't vote. Uh, people under 21 couldn't vote. It's, it's always embattled for African-Americans to vote. But like on the ground, 
everyone is engaged in these huge, massive elections with public rallies and protests and riots. And you, you refuse to read the partisan newspapers and there's there's partisan uh, slogans on the walls of cities. And it just seemed like saturating and inescapable. And at the same time, even as Americans are really diving into this thing, they're pretty frustrated with the results they're getting. They're not happy with their leaders. They're not happy with this high level of partisanship. And Will Kelly dives right into the mix. He, he kind of he grows up poor in Philadelphia and finds his, after working child labor for a while, he, he kind of finds his his roots of success in that he's a great speechifier. He's, he's got an incredible voice and he can stand on a soapbox and give these, these incredible political speeches about workers' rights, about abolition and black voting rights and women's suffrage. And so he, he kind of dives right into this big, aggressive public politics because he's a He's a big, aggressive public personality, and he's fighting all these issues, you know, as as closely as he can and, and bringing them home to his family, too. Well, I thought one of the the best illustrations of the partisanship and how it just permeated everything. You have to tell them about you're talking about the party bosses and the way they ran partisan politics in the cities and the volunteer fire companies. Oh, yeah. But they really weren't fire companies. They were like partisan gangs that part was bananas you have to you have to tell the people about the fire companies yeah it's it's nuts it's there's a little bit of it in gangs of new york and i remember seeing and thinking what's happening here and it's one of those things where something you see in a movie turned out to be real and is even weirder in reality than in the movie (laughs) so back then there's no fire companies from the there's no like municipal fire company if your house catches fire there are these private companies that come and they, they put out the fires but they're all in competition with each other and like financially in competition with each other. So they, they often fight to see who gets to put out the fire. And they're also all aligned with different ethnic and cultural groups and religious groups and political parties. So the Irish Catholic uh, fire company might show up at the same time as the, the kind of nativist uh, evangelical Protestant company does. And they represent different parties. And they end up fighting each other in front of your house while your house burns down. Or they'll like it's crazy. They'll sabotage, like like set up ambushes for each other and blow up each other's fire engines and throw them in the river and that kind of thing. And they're also when they're not fighting each other, they're they're running elections because these elections take a lot of work on the ground. And you have these they're gangs or, or thugs or something. I don't know quite what to call them, but there you have these gangs of organized people who are ready to get out the vote on election day. So they're. They're fighting fires, they're running elections, and they're fighting each other. And it kind of shows how the good and the bad of this era is all mixed up together, you know? And I think that's what's so interesting is the intensity of the era, the way that the Civil War and emancipation really raised the stakes. Like, it led to this intense partisanship, but it also led to this, it feels like, like reimagining of how things can be and what things could be. And I think what you get at so well is that Will Kelly and his daughter saw that future differently, that when it came this really momentous moment in American history where if things can look different and we can fight a civil war and end slavery, which was so momentous, then what else can we change? What else can look different? And their answers as a father and daughter across generations and across life experiences were not surprisingly different answers. Yeah, that's so well put. They both kind of grow up in this era of political fluidity, right? Like parties are created during this era. Parties die. The Whig Party stops existing. The Republican Party and the Know-Nothings are created. Slavery's ended. People think slavery, it'll take generations to end slavery if it'll ever happen. And then it happens in in a few short years. So there's just a sense that like, you say it really well, there's there's just a ton of flexibility in the system. And and Will kind of raises Flory, his daughter, in in this era where where he expects her to go out into the world and, and see this fluidity and then over the next generation, 
things kind of lock down and it becomes harder to make this change. And so both of them have to struggle in their own ways with living in a culture that's gridlocked culturally and politically. And that that's really challenging for people who you know grew up expecting rapid major revolutionary change. Well, and I think one of the really interesting places they sort of reach different conclusions on the answer is is this partisanship, right, and the way that it manifests in a lot of corruption and frustration with politics and politicians. I thought this was one of the most interesting statistics you had in the book. You talked about prior to the Civil War between the 1830s and before the war, it Congress had its lowest rate of incumbency and in that people really would go and serve, you know, because they were mostly like rich landowners, would go and serve short terms. But that after the Civil War, the length of service doubled and you start to have professional politicians. And then, of course, you start to have corruption and a real frustration with the politics on the ground and what it looks like. And and so how did Will and Flory like perceive that differently? You know, it's interesting. These families where people come into conflict about politics, often they have shared values and express them through different mm-hmm. political kind of horizons or goals. And Will, I mean, just, I think you might need to repeat that one more time because oh, <laughs> sure. it just comes to play so often in our lives, right? Yeah. Like uh-huh. we don't see it as shared values, but it is. They're just expressing themselves differently. Yeah, right. And they're, sometimes that's why it's nice to use history because 150 years yes. distance lets us see that these this father and daughter who, you know, really see each other themselves in conflict at some points, they're working to the same goal. They're working over mm-hmm. a century to improve the lives of workers and women and African-Americans. Uh, they just, they're fighting over kind of like, the means, not the ends, but their ends are pretty similar. So I guess Will's ends, he grows up in this era where party politics just explains everything. Like the only way to make change, he he helps write the 15th Amendment. He sees as like political action, running campaigns, winning elections, passing laws as the only way to make change in America. That That's how you'll improve the lives of freed slaves or, or women who want the vote or workers whose lives are getting harder. He sees it all as kind of institutional and electoral politics. You run a campaign, you win an election, you pass a law. That's the only option. And his daughter, Flory, who you know becomes much more radical, is a socialist for a while. Um, she grows up with an assumption in a way the political system just won't work. The politicians won't do what they should. The voters don't really see their true interests and are kind of voting for people who aren't really helping them. And so she she starts to seek every way around electoral politics by instead of running campaigns, she'll organize boycotts or can, consumer things or lobbying. And part of it is because she's a woman in the 19th and early 20th century and she can't vote. She can't hold office. Yeah. So her skepticism is well placed. Yeah. And in a way that I don't mean to like play down the significance of not being able to vote, but in a way that's a gift to her because she can find other options, right? She mm. She's not locked into this party system and these big stupid campaigns. She can kind of be really creative about, well, what's the best way to really make change? It might not be to try to pass a law. It might be to try to get consumers to boycott sweatshops or something like that. So they, they're, they're working to the same goal over really a century. They just live in different eras and have different horizons of, of options. And I think you probably see that in families today, too. I mean, it seems like something you talk about a lot about, the, the ways families split along those lines. Well, and I think what you see is that they are both finding um, that sense of belonging that often politics offers just in different ways, right? So I think you write so well that parties really offered a sense of community to the masses at this time period that, you know, you talk a lot about the massive turnout during presidential elections and people would bemoan 
or at least people, you know, in the elites would bemoan the sort of outcome of this. But the masses were caught up in the emotion, almost a sense of community within the political parties. And I think she really found that in the communities of political activists. And she found belonging, people who would care for her children, like the sense of purpose and this connection to the group be it through activism or through political parties. And I definitely think that still happens today. Yeah. I mean, it. you could say in, in the first Gilded Age and, and the second, if you want to call it that, people who were suffering from disruption and inequality and lacking community organizations helped them out. Well, the parties are right there waiting to help you out or give you an identity, at least. And I think he falls for it a little more than her. She, you're right. She definitely feels these benefit of these kind of progressive causes and, and whole house and, and finding these people to watch her children and help her. But she's a little tougher in some ways than him. And she doesn't really need to be in a party the way he does. Considering the fact that he survives multiple assassination attempts, she's <laughs> she's more willing to make enemies in a way and burn bridges to, to do what she thinks is right. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space. 
to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Talking about these people's lives, we are this far into our conversation, and yeah, we just are now mentioning that he was the subject of multiple assassination yeah, attempts. A couple, because <laughs> that's how wild it was back then. Yeah, they didn't even mention it in his uh, obituary because it didn't. It wasn't the top ten things to mention, you know. <laughs> so he got shot at. So he got stabbed. Oh well, and I think this is the part of the book that sort of the increased political violence is just really hard for us to wrap our heads around. And I think in particular, you spend a lot of time on the patronage system and the assassination of President Garfield and the surfacing of what they called at the time cranks. Tell mm-hmm. us about cranks uh, and what that meant to people at the time and what you think is pretty similar to our time. Yeah. I mean, I, I do see that parallel. I'm glad you kind of saw it to the present, too. Um so it all starts with the assassination of, of President James Garfield. In, in 1881, there's a guy who, he's already a little on the outs. He's kind of a drifter and an oddball. He, he was probably honestly mentally ill, but he gets very caught up in politics and patronage. And he, he decides that the America would be better off if the president was out of the way, as he put it. So he buys a gun and he assassinates James Garfield. With that, there's kind of what's called the epidemic of cranks, which is this idea that there are all these these people on the kind of the outs in society who are pushing these conspiracy theories and causes to kind of undermine society or to improve society. They, they're really sloppy back then with what they call a crank. Like Susan B. Anthony's a crank. We were sloppy with crank. language? Yeah, no. Just a little bit. A, a crank kind of means it's positive, not negative, in that like it's somebody who's really pushing an idea for change. And some of those ideas for change are, are things we love today. And some, you know, believe that there are giants who live in the center of the earth or, or crazy conspiracy theories about the government. And, and it's all coming, I think, from the sense that politics is really stalled. This is in the 1880s. The parties are just neck and neck. These are the closest elections in American history. But the parties look pretty similar. Neither of them is really offering anything good for people. Neither of them can really promise to make much change. But they're really good at riling people up. So you have all these people like James Garfield's assassination, uh, assassin Charles Guiteau, kind of bouncing around who are getting really heated up by the political system and the news and all the partisanship. But it's not going anywhere because there's no there's no closure. There's no laws passed. There are no landslide elections. It just it just feels like they're boiling a pot. And these cranks are kind of the people acting out and, and assassinating people. There are a lot of assassinations back then. There's uh, one congressman killed every seven years during that. era. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's, it's nuts. Uh, and and it's, it's in Europe, too. It's uh, there's just a culture kind of of people expecting change and not getting it and looking around for some explanation. So kind of, you can draw parallels, I think, to, to QAnon and some of the, the cranks and conspiracies today. Well, and I thought what was so interesting is, you know, I've always thought and read a great deal about the progressive era. And I think it's this sort of underappreciated time. And we mm. take we take for granted so many of the changes that seemed impossible that they pushed through. 
from the direct election of senators to the the secret ballot and the individualized sort of approach to politics. But I'd never thought about the effect that had on turnout and participation and that when you make it an individualized act and you subtract that sense of emotion and belonging that people felt within the party system, it starts to be something out there instead of something that you're participating in day to day. And I had not realized that we did see such a the crash in voter turnout when one of these big progressive era changes, the secret ballot, came about. Yeah. One of the reasons I thought this history was so fascinating and wanted to write about it was because I really like history with kind of trade-offs and nuance. And there's no singular good things in history and no completely bad things. Everything causes some kind of knock-on effect. And the progressive era is full of all these changes that really improve American lives, right? This is the era when, when women get the right to vote, when clean food laws get passed. You know, American life expectancy expands more during this era than any other. And, and politics gets cleaned up. You, The political violence falls away and a lot of the corruption falls away. But the way they make it fall away, is, as you say, is they, they kind of privatize the process of being engaged in politics. So you're not going with your buddies to go vote. You're going to a waiting line and fill out a government document. It's not it's not kind of compelling to people and, and voter turnout crashes. And so one of the things the book is kind of asking without saying it outright is, can you have civility and participation at the same time? Is it mm. is it a trade-off? And they, they manage to make their politics more civil and, and get a lot more done, but they lose a huge percentage of the voters, especially voters who are working class, young, immigrant, not English speaking, African American, kind of the populations who were most vulnerable to begin with, who were participating mm. 80% of the turnout, they, they're the ones who are really hit the hardest by this. So what what are the trade-offs of what seem like unalloyed good reforms? Well, and I think there's an equivalent right in, inside the changes they make inside sort of the political process itself, because another big fallout from the progressive era and particularly the assassination of James Garfield is the the patronage system and massive changes to the patronage system. So tell people how politics sort of ran, which really was part and parcel of the partisan system, right? Because people were not just emotional because it offered a sense of belonging, but because it often offered real tangible benefits, be it through jobs or access to the political system through patronage. So tell us about that. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important connection to draw that. I don't know when I first heard about civil service reform and patronage, it sounded very dry and kind of limited, like like maybe a few lucky people got something crooked and it didn't affect anyone else. But the force that's driving all this is the political campaigns, which are the biggest, most popular events in American culture. There's there's no Hollywood. There's no NFL. The biggest events are election rallies. That's where you see the most people. That's where people shoot off fireworks and get drunk and yell slogans. It's kind of the, the the biggest thing going on in American national culture at the time. And it's a lot of work to have these big rallies and big political events. And so the the people behind the scenes who are, you know, buying the whiskey and the fireworks and getting everyone to march in the same line, they want to get something out of it. So campaigners and government officials start using government jobs as like a gift to whoever runs these these big political events. And so like the the worst aspects of kind of political corruption, kind of nitty gritty of these machines are really tied intimately to the biggest aspects of popular culture. These these partisan political campaigns that are so exciting and colorful and, and thrilling, they're all kind of intertwined, the, the good and the bad of, of turnout with with corruption. Yeah. And so like when we lose that back and forth, and it was, I mean, transactional to a certain extent, you also lose the, I don't want to say motivation, but it was like you did lose some of the energy that was fueling 
that participation. And I think we we look at the civil service reform as positive, like wholly and completely positive. And I wonder if after really looking at this time in history, if you feel that way. Yeah, I, I guess it's almost like we want competing things that are kind of in, in conflict. And we, I think maybe we're not then and now very articulate about what a good election looks like and a good political system looks like. Is it is it one that is clean and, and sober and well-informed and rational, or is it one that has the most people participating as possible, including people who are kind of overlooked in other aspects of society? And you have this real trade-off from the, the 19th century to the 20th, where at first you have this kind of big public working class political system that engages a ton of people and gets incredible enthusiasm for, you know, these these dog catcher election or whatever. Really, even minor elections get just huge tons of turnout and engagement. And they, they trade that off for really low turnout, the crash turnout, many barriers along class lines. But the elections are kind of more sober and thoughtful and uh, more thinking, less shouting is the, the slogan. And more elite. The time. Right? Yes, and they're more elite. That's exactly right. So you have an electorate that's more kind of upper middle class, white, suburban, uh, American born as opposed to immigrants. Um, yeah, so they, they make this trade and, and they're not very reflective at the time about what they're losing to make this trade, the people who, who kind of manufacture it. But a uh, hundred years later, as we're, we're kind of struggling with these issues of engagement and civility and, and political anger and everything, I think I think it is helpful to think about, well, what's the trade-off? Can you can you get people engaged without getting them angry or drunk and in the streets, you know? Well, and I think that the patronage system, you know, I was reading your book and in the midst of it, I listened to an interview with Michael Lewis about his new mm. book on Ezra Klein's show. And he was arguing that, you know, one of the big problems at the CDC is that it's headed by a political appointee and that... Yeah. That really changed the way the system worked. And that's another place like it's sort of like this patronage and we need to get rid of that. And he was definitely setting up as a total as a wholly and completely positive thing. Like any more like any further elimination of political appointees is always going to benefit the system. And, you know, I think reading your book, it's I think he made a good case, particularly when it comes to public health that, yeah, maybe we need a more longer term appointee. But I think that I'm increasingly skeptical of the post-progressive error argument that the sort of intellectual bureaucracy is always the best answer in government. Because I think that you make a really good case that there is a lot lost when we think, well, we'll just let the the experts lead us because it's really never that simple, right? It's never never that easy. And I think we came off like party bosses and, you know, Robert Moses and the idea that these people who could like use the levers of power, did it in in really negative ways. And I think that's true. And I also think it's a little more complicated than that, than that they they got things done. And some of what you see, the bubbling up frustration and the, the cranks of our air today is that they are pinpointing something that that is true, that it's a system that is individualized, that is sort of locks you out of it and and zaps the energy from the real democratic part of the process. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this this book is kind of like the the origin story of the establishment, you know, with like a capital right. E. Yeah, and, and that establishment has, uh, I don't want to sound too radical because I'm kind of in the middle on this one, but does have blood on its hand. And we've seen things, you mentioned Robert Moses, we've seen things like eugenics, sterilization campaigns, yes. a lot of things you saw done by progressive reformers in the 20th century, at least in part because you didn't have 80% turnout, because when you have an election where incumbents win in uncontested seats with, with low turnout, they, they can get a lot of away with a lot of bad behavior. Or because the experts at the time said that's what we should be doing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Even you see, I think you see that with Flory. You see like some opinions that that was like sort of the intellectual elitist opinion at the time. And you see her espousing things that are not exactly the approved stance today among progressives, I guess is what I want to say. Yeah. she Florence Kelly is, is in some ways hostile to democracy with a small d. I mean, she she says politicians are, I'm quoting, a funnel for lobbyists to pour their ideas through. She basically thinks voters are stupid and are always wrong and are always kind of mm. hoodwinked, especially when they don't vote the way she wants them to. Uh, I do think one of the things we have to grapple with, uh, especially the per, from the perspective of the progressives, is that the, the changes they want aren't always the changes that the majority of people want. And, and right. it took shutting out a lot of people to make those changes. Now, on the other hand, opening the floodgates and going back to how politics worked in 1870 or whatever, that's that's not I do not war- want, want warring <laughs> fire companies. I yeah. do not want to go back yeah. to that. That sounds bad. Yeah. I want to put that on the record. Yeah, I don't want to be – I thought this was optimistic. Maybe it's pessimistic. There, there's no good options, I guess, is the, the message of the history here. There are only complicated options, right? I think that's the key is that the idea is not to find a solution with no downsides, but it's always to find a strategy open-eyed to its downsides, you know, clear-eyed about the trade-offs instead of pretending like there never are any. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you read the the people arguing to reform politics and quiet down democracy in the, let's say, the 1890s or 1900s, they say there are no downsides to these new ideas. They are better ideas. Uh, and they, one of the ways they're able to Should make have been change, our first warning flag. I know. That, that should set off the red lights right there. I think this is hard to do, but one of the mistakes they make is that they're backwards looking in the changes they want to make. They look at this big, ugly political system in the 19th century, and the only thing they can kind of agree across the political spectrum is to end the old system, right? Mm. They don't want these big campaign convulsions. They don't want partisanship and passion and, and, and public politics, but they're not really articulate about what politics should look like. So by by just kind of building building a new system to replace the old system, they build in all these new problems. And I, I don't know if, if reformers going forward can kind of move backwards and forwards in time to anticipate the the damage they're going to do, but we really do see the harm done by people who are just trying to end X with Y. You know, you can really kind of wander into new dangerous territory. Well, and on this Father's Day, I don't want to say that, you know, all of this complexity between Will and Flory was left unresolved. They had a time period in in her young life where they really were in conflict and they really did, weren't speaking, but that was not the entire trajectory of their relationship, right? Yeah, they they reconcile years before he um before he dies and build a strong loving relationship again and he knows his grandchildren and and she she carries on his legacy. I mean, we have this family, this dynasty really who's fighting for working people in America for a century. There there aren't many other examples of that. They're they're not particularly well known, but I think they should be better known because of the because of the positive nature of their relationship. And uh, you know, these are these are Big personalities are passionate people. It's not surprising that they ended up in conflict. But I think you can really see so clearly the the education and the training he gave her at a young age, carrying on into not just her life in the 20th century, but things we take for granted today. The social security, the New Deal, attitudes towards gender, like child labor laws, child labor laws. That's absolutely right. We, we can see all these things that they built together. And so, you know, they there's their drama in their lives but but I do think there's a there's a shared Kelly legacy that that we all benefit from today with without kind of sugarcoating over their you know less less admirable traits well and I think that's so beautiful and I think that that is what you were saying right they shared these values 
of prioritizing and recognizing and valuing the people and the political values that they held dear and that they worked for them and they worked for them in different ways. Sometimes they even worked at cross purposes, but like that scene that that is what united them. And, you know, we have the benefit of, of looking back over the course of the family's impact. But I just think that's a really beautiful thing to keep in mind in our own relationships as well. Yeah. And you can, I think maybe just as we can all do in our own family lives, you can connect the dots in there. So you can see Will Kelly reading to a seven-year-old Florence Kelly about child labor, you know, maybe traumatizing a small child in the process. <laughs> She's working to fight child labor. She becomes probably the most prominent person fighting it a generation later. You can see him introducing her to African-American politicians in Philadelphia. She helps found the NAACP a generation later. You, you can just see all these like all these values and almost like Easter eggs and, and causes that he, he introduces her to as a young girl become the causes she's fighting for well after he's he's passed on, you know, and she's she's not a Republican the way he was a Republican, but she's still fighting for the same causes kind of across partisan name or whatever. I think that is a beautiful visual and place to end. Thank you so much for writing this book and sharing not just the Kellys with all of us, but with this particular moment in American history that is so close to our own and can offer us both lessons and I think a fair bit of hope. Yeah, thank you for uh, for such an enthusiastic read and so much interest in it. It's, it's fun to talk about. I just want to thank John again. I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation. I think that period in American history is so important. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today. 
with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? Well, we are coming to approach Father's Day. We had a discussion around Mother's Day that it seems like brands and just people on social media are starting to approach these holidays with more sensitivity and consideration for the fact that people have really complicated relationships. There are huge variances in how folks feel about these holidays, that there is still something special about observing them and that we need to observe them with a lot of space for where everybody is. So I thought it might make sense for us to just talk a little bit about our relationships with our dads today. There has been such tremendous change and cultural awareness on the importance of the roles of fathers and what fathers look like. You know, I just think about how my grandmother talks about her dad and how, like, closed off emotionally he was from them and, you know, how she sees it so differently with her own sons. And, you know, I can see that even with my dads that they, you know, I have two. I'm very, I'm very blessed. I have my dad, John, and then my stepfather, Ron. And so just watching how they embrace such more active roles as fathers. And and then, of course, Nicholas, too. Like, I just think that's really encouraging. I think that our culture has taken such giant leaps. We're not there yet, as we all learned during the pandemic. It's not exactly like we fixed it. We can, you know, dust off our hands and move on. But I think generationally, it's so different and it's so much better. You know, even my dad moved to Arizona and then California when I was little. And even though I only saw him during the summers or or holidays, like he still was so and continues to be so active in my life was a really, really great long distance dad. And both my dad and my stepfather, you know, I wrote about this in the acknowledgments of our books, just played such a role in like, you know, welcoming me to the table and talking to me about what I thought. And, you know, especially my stepdad would listen to hours and hours of political conversation and political debate. And, you know, I just think I wouldn't I wouldn't be who I was if it wasn't for them. And I'm I'm so grateful that I have not just one, but two great father figures in my life for sure. To that point about the way that sometimes we define fathers in too narrow of a box, I was thinking about my dad's life and how caregiving has really been a central pillar of his life. 
early in his life, he left his career in banking to move home to the family dairy farm and work with his dad, who was suffering with asthma, which turned out to be maybe providential in some respects because his dad then died a couple years later. And then my grandmother, his mother, had serious dementia, and my dad devoted so much of his energy and emotion and time to taking care of her through the end of her life. Um, My mother has an autoimmune disease, and my dad has devoted so much of his energy and his time and his life to helping her through that. And all through my life as a dad, he has really been an emotional caretaker for me. My dad is the person who says to me, I hope that you're happy. I'm so proud of you. How are you feeling about things? And uh, it really defies the sort of, let me give you a tie and a card that alludes to barbecue stereotype. Mm -hmm. Um, When I think about how my dad has spent his time and what his priorities have been. And he truly has always prioritized his family above absolutely everything else. And it's something that I am thinking about a lot. And he and he and Chad have extremely different personalities. And also, I see in Chad that same drive to put family first in absolutely everything that he does. And I feel very blessed that my experience with the two men who I've observed most closely as fathers has been that way. Yeah, my family always talks about that the women in our family are not particularly nurturing. My great-grandmother's mother died when she was very young of an ectopic pregnancy, and she was raised by her stepmother. And back, you know, in the early 1900s, it's like your stepmother took really good care of you, but it wasn't like how we think about bonus parents now, right? And So she was not, she was fantastic and amazing and like the most amazing influence, even as a great grandmother. I still got a lot of time with her, but she wasn't like warm and nurturing and neither is my grandmother and neither is my mother. It was the men in my life, the father figures in my life that were really, really nurturing and loving both my dad and my step, my stepdad has like the softest heart. And then my grandfather, my father's father, my paternal grandfather, my great uncle Joe, who was in my life a lot when I was really little, like these men who were like very nurturing and loving and caring and just like really did like adopt that caregiving role and who just sort of propped me up and gave me such confidence in life to just think that I could do, you know, whatever I wanted to do. I think I've talked about this on the show, especially with my stepdad. I realized like one of the big sort of issues we had as I grew older is I think it felt like he was trying to argue me out of my experiences if I like felt like I was being treated unfairly or being discriminated against or bumping up against stereotypes for women. And I realized that it was like he was he was so sad that I really wasn't getting the chance that he believed that I would get like that. He, he wasn't trying to gaslight me. He was just so sad that that was my experience. It's like he couldn't accept it. But I, you know, I think it's a testament to our relationship that we kind of work through that. And like, he will take my sort of rage <laughs> at times and anger and frustrations at situations and just, you know, sit with me through it. You know, my stepdad, like, it is truly like something out of a sitcom. I just get, I get like voicemails, like, I just want you to know that I just love you. I'm so proud of you. And I think about people, you know, it makes me so sad and it, it's hard not to feel guilty because I know there are people who have you know, really terrible relationships with their fathers who never articulate what their kids mean to them or don't have fathers 
at all due to tragedy or choice or, you know, the wide spectrum in between. And I'm just so incredibly grateful that I not, not only have one, but two men in my life and more father figures than those two who have given me such confidence and have loved me and supported me and continue to do so and continue to do that for my kids. And I love that Chad is different from your dad. Nicholas is so much like Ron sometimes. It creeps me out, but that's okay. It's just, that's my, it's my cross to bear like they're so, so, so similar sometimes. You know, it's interesting that you say that about thinking through where Ron was coming from, because I've been thinking a lot about how my criticism of my dad growing up was that he had a really hot temper. Mm. I don't know what that's like at all. <laughs> and and maybe he did, but now I realize that when he was 29, he lost his dad, who was also the person he worked alongside every single day. And he lost his dad on the farm that he continued to work on every single day. And to live in that kind of grief and shock, he, his dad died, my grandfather, in an accident connected to a tornado. Mm. So it was just so sudden and awful. And looking back, I think, gosh, he and my mom were so young. I'm reflecting on this now, and I'm 11 years older than mm. he was when that happened. And I can't imagine that they had the kind of support around them that anybody would have needed, even though I know the community really wrapped its arms around them. What a horrific thing that they went through. And they just kept carrying on through, you know, a, a pretty a pretty hard time and the hard labor of working a farm as that industry was really transitioning. So I just have so much more compassion and respect for what they did and and how they did it for me and the fact that they have raised me so well and so gently that I haven't really even considered that, you know, until I'm in my 40s. So lots of love to everyone who doesn't have this luxury because I know that the way that I am able to think about my parents is due to the luxury that I just happen to be born to these two people who have who have given me their best love every single day of their lives. Yeah, my stepdad also had and has a pretty bad temper. It's gotten way better in the last few decades, but that was also a big sort of bone of contention when we were growing up. And I just see now that, like, I have three boys that, and, like, I think a lot about masculine culture and what we tell men that just, you know, especially when he was growing up, it was just, that that was his option. That was the emotion presented to him as the like happy or mad those were your options and continue I think to be presented to men as their main options and you know I have a pretty bad temper especially you know and I've worked on it and thought about it and you know spent a lot of time on it and I, I see it it bubbles up the most when I want to control a situation and I can't. And I think, well, boy, it's not a surprise that men have tempers because they are taught that they should control everything and that they're in charge, especially in families. And I don't mean like control the people, but I mean like keep everybody safe. Are you the primary breadwinner or just the like, you know, the main breadwinner, even if somebody else is earning? Like, are like, I just look at my dad and my stepdad and my husband and think about all the pressure that they're under or have been under at different points in time and how, like that does bubble up as like control and anger. And it's not that I condone it or just sort of like blow it off, but I also have enormous empathy for it. So I know that there are people in all kinds of families listening, people who are fathers, people who are in that role for a child, 
people who have lost fathers, fathers who have lost children. And we're just thinking about all of you and holding lots of space around all these different experiences and also kind of lighting a candle for our own gratitude for our dads today. So we hope you have the best Father's Day weekend available to you, no matter your circumstance. And we will see you back here on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Amy Whited. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.